Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, as 2021 wraps up, what do we think is in store for 2022? We will also discuss Wisdom Tree's market outlook, some cool new things they're working on, and what it's like to podcast with the legendary Jeremy Siegel. That's with our guest, Jeremy Schwartz, co-host of Behind the Markets podcast and the Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree Asset Management. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. What are we watching for at the moment? We are recording this in the first full week of December. And let's see, since Thanksgiving, we've had bad COVID news. We've had bad inflation data. The Federal Reserve is going to get tough on inflation. And you know what? The market is up at this point for the month and for the quarter. So I do think the odds suggest we should finish the year strong. We've got bullish seasonals. The COVID data seems to be better than we originally thought. Sentiment is also quite bearish. And it sounds counterintuitive, but that generally means we have above average returns over the next month. All right. Well, as you mentioned, we're in the final weeks of 2021 as we record this. So what do you think is in store for the markets in 2022? What are your predictions? Well, I think it's kind of easy to say with right now we have gains of over 20% that next year is not going to be as strong as this year. And I think there are headwinds. So we have high valuations, which of course have always been offset by lower interest rates, but we could have higher interest rates, particularly if inflation continues to move higher. We should have a less friendly Federal Reserve, of course, and the economy should really remain strong. However, the growth rates won't be as strong as they have been. And it's often about the trends and not the level. So, of course, the best course of action is a globally diversified portfolio. But you know what? That's just my outlook. More importantly, we have the global chief investment officer of Wisdom Tree Asset Management, and we want to hear his view. That's right. All right. Well, let's bring him in. Jeremy Schwartz, Global Chief Investment Officer at Wisdom Tree. Jeremy, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Robin, Rusty, thank you for having me. All right. Well, before we get started, we have the all-important question. Rusty, take it away. Well, Jeremy, I think you already know this first question, but it is the most important question because it really sets the stage for everything that follows. And that is, what is your walk-up song? What is the music we can hear in the background? Well, you know, I went through some different playlists, try to figure out what song best describes me and try not to choose the band choice if that uh, dictates it. But I think the song that spoke to me for this for you guys was All In by Lifehouse and All In being sort of my mantra in life. I do happen to like playing poker. So going all in, people could find me doing that quite often. But the spirit of being all in at Wisdom Tree. I mean, my only real job um, in my career has been there from the beginning, all in with Professor Siegel. We've worked together for 20 years and has been a a huge mentor of mine. So I've been all in with him, you know, and, and Wisdom Tree, we are, as we've been talking about actually on a recent blog, our CEO has said, we're all in on DeFi. And so we are going all in in a lot of different places beyond uh, what we've been doing before. So a lot of interesting stuff tied to this all in commentary. 
Nice. Perfect choice. I've heard you use that phrase before, so perfect. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, Jeremy, as you mentioned, you have been at Wisdom Tree for nearly 17 years, your first job out of college, and that was at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. So can you tell us a bit more about you, your background, and what drew you to investing? It's a pretty simple story. My father likes to say when I was as young as two years old on his lap, he would show me you know, the Wall Street Journal pages and show stock prices with me. So he likes to take a lot of credit for getting me into stocks from a very young boy perspective. I guess I always liked math. Going back to like first grade, I got accelerated in math somehow, probably from those stock pages as a two-year-old. And, and so I, I liked numbers. And as I was studying for college, I like business-oriented stuff more than sort of literature or history, things like that. But, you know, a sort of interesting melding of when I got to work, I met Professor Siegel and sort of right place, right time, lucky timing. I got to meet him through a program called the Dean's Advisory Board that was run by Patrick Harker, who's now the Philadelphia Fed president, sort of small little interconnected world. But I was on this Dean's Board with Harker. I got to meet Siegel through that. And I didn't know you had to apply to his class, but I, from this program, I got to meet him. He got me into his class and so the rest is history. I, I wanted to work for him for the summer of 2001. We ended up working together. I ended up taking off time from school, like two years to work on books with him. And we're actually now coming full circle, doing the next edition of Stocks for Long Run right now. But we've worked together for 20 years. Wisdom Tree came in 2004 as we were finishing The Future for Investors, which was published in 2005. Siegel was talking all about value investing, how to protect from bubbles, rhymes with some of, some of the elements of what's going on today, not everything, but the element of wisdom tree was exactly what we wrote about in the future for investors is a place why i've been all in at wisdom tree ever since all in that's right and you have held several roles at wisdom tree over the years you started as a senior analyst i believe and then you were director of research head of global research and now you're the global chief investment officer can you tell us more about the work that you do and the teams that you work with yeah. So, I mean, Siegel's training was perfect for what I do here. Like they couldn't have been better on the job training for what I was doing at Wisdom Tree within the books. Like we were researching investment strategies, writing about them, communicating them in undergrad in 2001 to today. It's basically very much the similar type of stuff, just different levels of responsibility. But I was the fourth employee at Wisdom Tree back then and now the second longest after CEO. And the starting point was creating stock indexes. So we were doing research doing back tests, figuring out how do you get different exposures and creating rules-based strategies and then writing papers. And my first project was writing the long white paper that supported the original dividend indexes. I have a few sub-teams, like we're overseeing the indexes. So we have a big index team doing that. We do model portfolios. So with Orion, we have some Siegel branded model portfolios available through Orion. And so my team, I have a CIO of model portfolios on that team, Scott Welch, who came from Dynasty. And so we're doing both standard models, custom models is a big part of what we do. We do active funds. So Quant Active, we hired somebody from Vanguard who ran their active factor funds, Lee Chen Ren, who also has been strong on China. If anybody needs to talk China, she's been, I think, the best commentator on all of Wall Street on what's been happening in China this year. So we provide macro, we provide the micro, we create strategies. And now globally, I've got a team in Europe doing the same thing. They're very strong in commodities. They're very strong in crypto and doing it all on a global basis. When you're building a team of investment professionals, what attributes do you look for? What do you think makes a good research team? It's interesting. The combination of skills that are really in demand, there's a few different types of skills. So one is 
everything now is Python. When I was doing things, it was SAS and SQL. Python has become the programming language of choice on our team. So there's an element of quant discipline where you're doing the systematic automation. So those skills can't be more handy. If people are studying, you know, computer science and finance together, you know, we have a lot of people who did a Columbia financial engineering programs. We have a group of people who have that background, but what's unique is also, can you communicate? And so often the programmers aren't always the people who you want always communicating and writing. And sometimes you think of those as different mindsets and different people. But if you have that full package, that is a very useful thing. And our team, We've often been the people who can explain what we're doing because we're like sort of the portfolio managers of the products. So you know what's happening there. A lot of groups call it, you know, portfolio specialists or strategists or other names. But we've often served as the explainers in addition to the people creating things. And so every rule is slightly different. But that combination of skill set is can you explain what you're doing? Can you do the hard programming work? All that is what's been, been the key people we've been hiring. All right. So again, you are the host of a podcast, a popular podcast called Behind the Markets, which has a lot of thought leaders in our industry on it. Behind the Markets is on Sirius, it's on Wharton Business Radio. And of course, you have Jeremy Siegel on it as well. And you open many of your podcasts, or is it all of your podcasts? It seems like he's always leading on mall off with a quick interview with Jeremy. So my question is really about Jeremy. So we've had him on our podcast recently, and it was really popular as you would expect. What have you learned from Jeremy, both personally and professionally? He taught me everything, right? So like you say you study at school and then you don't really learn until you have your first job. So he taught me a lot of what I know about the finance world. And he was self-taught in finance. I mean, he was a macroeconomist that taught himself finance. I mean, he hasn't taken a single finance course. I mean, he, so he was trained as a PhD in monetary economics. And so the ability to think big picture, to look at data and say, is it right or wrong? It's like you've got this intuition because you know the underlying macro story of what it should look like. So he's helped me take that big picture and stepping back in a lot of things. It is a co-hosted show behind the markets. You know, he quickly wanted a co-host. He did like one episode interviewing Bob Schiller like eight years ago. And they said, get me a co-host. And, you know, there's not a lot of people who want to talk the markets every week. Like he talks the markets at Wharton. And so what's nice is the people running the show and the channel back then knew of our relationship. and. Wisdom Tree let me do it at the beginning. You know, so it wasn't clear, like, you know, Jeremy's going to be spending time doing this radio show at Wharton and Sirius. What's the value to us? Is it just distraction or is it useful? This was before podcasts became popular. Was, I was going to have a radio show on Sirius. It was a new channel between Wharton and Sirius on business radio. And I said, you want me talking to smart people every week for an hour. And honestly, I'm sure you, Rusty, experienced this, the two. It's like the favorite hour of my week because you're just, you know, there's no agenda. You're trying to find smart people. I'm having conversations that I wouldn't have otherwise. I mean, we get Fed speakers, Fed presidents to come talk to us. Like there's a very important Fed meeting coming up. We're calling the Fed people and saying, you know, Siegel has a big view. I'm sure we could talk about this, but, you know, we're going to go directly to the Fed. And would they have come to a Wisdom Tree event? No. Will they come to Sirius XM behind the markets? Yes. And so I think that has been a key thing and a great outlet for us. And luckily, we've been able to do a podcast from it. The first three years, Sirius didn't let us take it off the platform, but we've been able to do a podcast. and It's been fun. I want to ask you more about that, because as you said, you were podcasting really before podcasting was popular or as popular as it is today. So eight years, that makes you a grizzled podcast veteran, right? So what lessons have you learned from the experience? 
I remember the first person I reached out to coming back to the Fed people was like the St. Louis Fed president. They're like, your name's not on the website yet. It's like, yes, I'm joining the show next week. You'll get turned down by people. If, if you don't ask, you're not going to get them. So part of it is hustle, but it has been rewarding. And it's not something that I had a specific goal in mind besides that I wanted to talk to interesting people and enjoy it, have fun, make sure that I was having a good time and that I was gaining something from it. And hopefully that that would then translate to everybody else. And so that sort of learning in that public format, I think, has been a very useful However, you structure those kind of exercises where you could help spread other people's message as well as learn from them has been a very key resource. Staying on the topic of the podcast, so you've had a lot of really interesting podcasts recently. What have been some of your favorite recent topics? Well, I'll say, I mean, we touched on Siegel a lot, but I would say this week's latest one, he has a pretty hot take. So I would tell people the last one, the guest was Phil Huber, who just wrote a great new book called The Allocator's Edge on the Role of Alternatives. And but to your point on the first 10 minutes, you know, so Siegel basically is out there. He's been out there on his inflation call. He's been out there on the Fed needs to pivot. And I even think the Powell pivot came from his branding of the Powell pivot. But he said that they need to be at 4% Fed funds and that they're going to invert the curve. And the curve is going to be inverted much more often than it used to be. And we shouldn't be scared. So that, that was a big statement. And it could be a very big macro. So that's going to tie into some other, you know, maybe other things. I would get people to go listen to that as you think about what evolves over the coming weeks and next year. So Phil Huber, Siegel on Behind the Marks there. I'd say tied to Huber's alternatives, I've been doing a lot with Corey Hofstein. Corey Hofstein's one of the quants I've met through Twitter and social media. And he's not done a few podcasts now, but we've done some on sort of prudent leverage capital efficiency that I think is, is an important concept. It's been a fun one that sort of developed product from Twitter and social media interactions tied to that. And so I think the Corey Hofstein discussion on capital efficiency was pretty interesting. And then for this idea of volatility, I mean, what the Siegel call was for more volatility coming was what he's calling for. One of the interesting solutions, we worked with Valmark Financial Advisors, who's a big RIA, and Michael McClary is a CIO of Valmark. And we worked on a options-oriented strategy that I thought was really interesting. No one's doing it like this today. And it was led by, you know, the Valmark team. They created an index. And so I think that's another one with Michael McClary of Valmark that's worth checking out. Mike and Corey are great. I love those guys. I think with those two guys, you have the start of a basketball team. They're so tall. You <laughs> and know? I think they do. I mean, they are amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's see. We need to know more about the hot take and one thing you can always count on Wisdom Tree is that you're not shackled by consensus opinions. It's always your independent thinking, as you would think everybody would do, but it's usually provocative. And so let's turn to the economic and market outlook. So what is Wisdom Tree's current view of the economy and inflation? So we've been saying inflation was going to be this hot number, not transitory. And we've been telling Powell to pivot for a while. He's now pivoting. I think you're going to see them accelerate the taper timeline. And so, you know, I alluded to the Taylor rule would say, the famous John Taylor rule would say 6% is the normal Fed funds. But even if you accepted that real interest rates, so let's say aren't two or are actually zero, which would, you know, is an aggressive assumption, but let's say that that still would give you a 4% Fed fund. So the path from zero to four is not 
nearly anyone has expected anything like that. And so, and we're not saying this is going to happen next year, but it's the type of thing that ratcheting expectations higher. And so the pivot towards that will create some anxiety. You've seen that through non-profitable tech stocks, which, you know, went up four times in 2020, partly because they were the COVID beneficiaries and they've retraced 30 to 40%. You've seen so the most speculative of the growth names have really retraced. You know, if you're going to get two to 3% on cash, that does reprice a lot of those speculative far out growth names. And so I think there has been a big market rotation on that. I mean, one of the things we've said with this higher rate cycles that it can be good for some of your traditional value sectors like financials, like some of the commodity stories, which we do think inflation is the answer. I mean, what's challenging is traditional bonds with the 10-year at 140, not even 145 as we're taping. I mean, it's not keeping up. I mean, it's not keeping up with the inflation that we see. So what do you do and how do you manage portfolios, model portfolios, 60, 40 portfolios that are confronted with these super low rate, super high inflation, and then a repricing that needs to happen to incorporate the Fed is no longer your friend. It's sort of taking some of this liquidity away and it needs to. So that's the current dynamic that we think is going on. Well, if one, the um, take that we could get an inverted yield curve and don't worry about it, I got to admit, if we really did, I still would worry about it. I mean, isn't the yield curve something that predicted seven of the last five recessions? Something right. like that. But- well, so that's why we're calling Bullard to get back on the show is he is one that when we pushed him, like he was very afraid of the inverted curve and question, does it cause the recession? Is it symbolic of the recession? But there's so much more hedging demand coming back to this, even this capital efficiency story that I talked about, you know, we create this 90, 60 strategy. That's for every hundred, you get $9 of stocks and $60 of bond futures. And part of the argument is that these bond futures act as a hedge. And so we're deploying that. That's where that Corey Hofstein type, you know, leverage 60, 40, that is the example of the bond futures acting as a hedge. So there's more people who view bonds as a hedge to stocks, and that is creating that far out demand at the long end. And so there are other reasons depressing that long end, whereas the short end, if they're going to confront inflation, they need to move it up. So that that is going to be, I think, one of the big questions. I don't hear anybody else besides Siegel talking about the inverted curve right now. And so he's pretty aggressive saying it's going to be much more normal in the future. How long does inflation last, higher inflation last, and what are the best ways to hedge it? It's a three to five year phenomena. This money supply that we put into the system is going to come out. I mean, so we're trained as Milton Friedman type monetary economists. So it's money built in the system that as we open up is going to be continue to come out. You know, you can't have money supply growth at double digit rates and expect two to three percent inflation. They have double digit money supply growth rates. So that's where the Fed needs to counteract that money supply growth. I think the hedges in our own models, we've added to commodities, we've added to managed futures. If you look at some of the research on managed futures as being a good hedge for inflationary times, there's a nice paper from the Mann Group and Campbell Harvey this year on managed futures for inflationary times. Commodities had been out of favor category for a very long time. And then you had these cost to rolls that was very hard for a while. Some of that has flipped from contango to backwardation. So there's no longer some of that big drag that you had historically. So we do think that money in the system will come out there. But really, equities are the best hedge for inflation. If you look at the 60-year dividend growth on the S&P 500, 57 
percent over 60 plus years, inflation in the threes. You got real growth on top of inflation. Most companies on average pass along price increases. Certainly some companies have more pricing power than other companies, but on average, the S&P can give you 2% real growth on top of inflation. So that's one of the reasons why as much as we say there can be volatility with this repricing of the Fed, stocks are the ultimate real assets with earnings and dividends that grow with inflation. So we would still be buyers of stocks, overweight, you know, from a longer run perspective, stocks versus bonds. But, you know, you add other things that are diversifiers as well. It seems like the stock market right now does have high valuations. And with the rising inflation for the next few years, obviously pressure on interest rates, you know, we've been able to kind of rationalize higher valuations in the stock market because interest rates have been so low. But it sounds like there'll be pressure on that now that the high valuations is now become a headwind. So what is ultimately the view in the stock and the bond market just for next year? Where can investors find value? The narrative that the markets are expensive is definitely one you hear very often. And it's not a cheap market, but I mean, I was just reviewing valuations on a call earlier. And so the forward PEs across the market today, this is how I see the forward PEs across the market. I see around 21 times the S&P. I see 17 times forward PEs on S&P 400, 16 PEs on forward PEs on small caps. You know, the S&P going back 150 years had a PE of 15. That gave the one divided by 15 is Siegel 6.7, you know, sort of long-term real returns being inversely related to the P ratios. If you took one divided by 20, that gives you a 5% real return from stocks. Yes, it's lower than average, but it's not a disaster lower than average. Now, there's also parts of the market that are not. We were looking at some baskets today of companies doing high buybacks that the average PE is 12 with a 7% dividend buyback yield. I mean, so that is not an expensive basket at all. That is a cheap basket. It's not a sub-quality basket. The ROE on that basket is like 20 above the market's ROE of something like I see the S&P ROE closer to 18. So it's not you know at a discount. It's at a premium with, with the 12 PE. Now, you know you could go to quality dividend growth stocks. I see it forward P's of 18 and a half with an ROE of 28. I mean, that again, to so the average PE 15, yes, it's a few multiple points higher, but these are high quality stocks. So I think they're deserving of a higher profitability ratio. So there's pockets that you can find reasonable valuations of. But overall, I don't think the market's massively overvalued. I think it's, yes, higher than normal. But given that bonds are at negative one in less, that the 5% you're getting in stocks is still a way above average equity premium. And I think there's plenty of baskets of stocks that are priced for even better than that. And again, the bond market, not necessarily constructive, but not necessarily it has to go to like 5% yields and tens. Right. I mean, we were saying you could invert the curve. You could be at two. And not saying that you will invert the curve for sure, but it's very possible. We're talking about that more and more, that there seems to be this extra demand at the long end. I mean, it wouldn't surprise us to keep creeping higher because of the inflation that we see and because we do think they ultimately have to act. But them acting, once they start acting, that does put pressure in a way it counterbalances. Once the Fed takes it seriously, you know, that long end can go back down. It's when they're not taking it seriously that there's these steepener trades and the long end goes up if they think the Fed's not going to take it seriously. So it's sort of interesting that, you know, the Fed acting could actually lower the long end, actually. 
One other question is about alternatives. You already mentioned a couple different alternatives that are really interesting, such as real assets like commodities or managed futures. But what about sort of the really hot alternative asset class? And I'm asking this because I know just shortly before even the recording, you have some hot news in this area. But what is Wisdom's Tree's view and what are you doing about digital assets? This is one of those areas that I said our CEO is all in on the decentralized finance. So for us, it's more than about Bitcoin, Ether and the exposures. It's trying to tokenize all sorts of assets like treasuries, like gold, have a wisdom tree wallet that these things are operating in. So DeFi to us is something we're investing a lot of resources on. We have probably 10 people full time focused on digital assets and four to five in research globally focused on crypto in particular. So we did do have some big, exciting news. Um, Last week, we had launched three basket products in Europe from things that combine Bitcoin and Ether to altcoins or lower cap coins and a broader market index. But in the US, very excitingly, we have worked with the team at Ritholtz Wealth Management, RWM, to launch the RWM Wisdom Tree Crypto Index. And Ritholtz's team is a consultant to our index. And they worked with us to think about for their clients to start, but it's going to be open up to the broad RA community very quickly. We have personally at a corporate level invested in a company called OnRamp Invest, which is a technology platform that helps integrate and make it happen. Frankly, you need OnRamp to make this happen today. There's not many ways for an RIA to go to Gemini directly and trade basket products like this. And so OnRamp is the technology platform that helps integrate. The direct coins will be through a custodian at Gemini to start. Gemini is one of the big crypto exchanges. The Winklevoss twins were the founders of that. So the head of business development actually is a former Wisdom Tree guy, Dave Abner. So we, we like the Gemini people. And so the OnRamp team helps make that available. So that's going to be one of the first calls if you're interested in the index. It's really OnRamp's demo you need to see. They'll have access. We've licensed them the index. They'll have access to that. And it's exciting. I mean, it's a 13 asset constrained, you know, some of the basket structure products we see there have like 90% 90 Bitcoin Ether. We are diversified a little bit less than 60% Bitcoin Ether with other coins, 11 coins at 4% at the start. And we will monitor for developments of new assets that come to market to add them. But it's a thoughtfully constructed index in our view and gives that broad exposure to the crypto economy. The index idea is fascinating. How is it different than other crypto indices out there right now? Well, I think it's the combination of the diversification. So I mentioned some of the index, you know, market cap weighted, dominated by the Bitcoin and Ether, depending on how they select it. You know, we are crafting it for availability in Gemini so that the assets have to be traded custody on Gemini at the start here. You know, so the 4% weight to those 11 smaller coins gives you this diversified play. And then you have an index committee overseeing it who will try to monitor the dynamics and include new assets that are up and coming and give more meaningful weights to them. And so you get this diversification play as well as sort of thoughtful construction on it. I think of our committee somewhat like the S&P committee where they are adding S&P 500. They have a review. They let things, it's cap weighted, so it floats. Ours is somewhat modified cap weighted. So we want to let those things that are work continue to work. We're not going to force it to rebalance back to a 4% arbitrary weight. But as new things come available, we want to make them available. And so we'll be looking at thoughtfully, how do we add to different sub-themes within the portfolio and index? And how do you get that diversification as new assets become available? 
Well, this has been a really great discussion. So thank you, Jeremy. But before we let you go, I do want to ask you some of our favorite questions that we ask here on the podcast. And in your 17 years at Wisdom Tree and all of your experience, what do you think are the qualities of a good investment manager? Well, you've got to be careful not to whimsically update your thinking, but as new evidence becomes available, you got to update your models and update your thinking. Some of that, you know, myself came with crypto. I started off thinking, is crypto just a a fad or is it this bubble? And you could say, hey, maybe that still is the case today. People worry about that, but we've come more to the view of it's got a lasting use case and there is real meaningful value. And so, you know, I personally got involved 18 months ago, but you got to sometimes think a bit differently than you did before. We do try to update our models as, as appropriate. And on the flip side of that, what do you think makes a good individual investor and financial advisor? The hardest part, and I know, you know, Rusty and your team, you do a lot on behavioral finance with Daniel Crosby and the work. I mean, the, the hardest part often is emotions and how do you systematize strategy? I, mean, I think that is the reason why we like the index-based approach um, to have a set of rules, stick to them and, and allocate in without letting the emotions get in the way. I think that is the hardest thing is making sure during the market bottoms, like a March 20, you know, are you getting too nervous and selling at the wrong times? The most scary is often when you should add and I know my wife gets, she's been trained in the Siegel style. You know, there's this irrational exuberance from Bob Schiller. We've sort of coined this irrational disexuberance where people get too pessimistic and, and overly sell. And I think that is one of those things that is hard because it's counter to the most common reaction. But that I think is the, the toughest thing. All right. Another favorite question of ours of late has been in our profession. Of course, we have an obligation to perform at a high level. How do you maintain your health, both physical or mental, to ensure that you're performing well? The thing that I think I've done is one of my favorite things about the pandemic and sort of the silver linings. You know, we've gone to a remote first mentality that suits my personality style pretty well. As a researcher, you know, the sort of INTJ Myers Briggs number you know, survey, you know, it's sort of self reflective a lot of the times. But the health standpoint, one of the things I try to do every morning, I got a treadmill desk with the TV on the wall. So I spend like an hour walking in the morning, doing things from, you know, trying to do 7 to 8 a.m., doing that most times. Also, my wife was trained as a yoga teacher. And so we've been doing yoga for 15 years. And it's not, I would say, you know, you think you hear yoga, and you just think stretching and bending, you know, it's, it's sort of like a light workout. The teacher that we go to is called the Zen Den at the Jersey Shore. She's doing Zoom classes. So if anybody wants to try the Zen Den, you know, you'll see me there probably four or five days a week, as long as I can schedule it. And I try to put it on my calendar, you know, to not schedule things during that. And sometimes it moves around, but I try to be religious about it for sure on the weekends. And it's pretty intense, but it's one of those things that try to be religious about it. And it's a very, very helpful practice. That's cool. You mentioned Myers-Briggs. You said I-N-J-T? I-N-T-J, yeah. I-N-T-J, I was meant to say that. Robin, do you know what yours is? I did at one time, but I don't remember. I know I is in there, but I don't remember the other ones. We had a bunch of I-N-T-Js at, on the research team. I'm an I-N-F-P. You know, one time here, my research team, there were 15 people on the team. Actually, it was 17, and we had all 16 of the personality types represented. How awesome is that? Anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> Actually, this next question is a really important one because it's the holiday season. And do you have any suggestions for what advisors and investors should be reading? Any like great book ideas? And related to that, of course, we'd love to hear if you have any 
recommendations on podcasts besides ours and Twitter feeds or anything else? Yeah, I mean, I live on Twitter for my news source. Like it's become my go-to news source for everything. So it's hard to say one specific person, you know, so in all these things, we, we gave a shout to Corey Hofstein. So his podcast series are ones I follow a lot. Everybody knows the Ritholtz team. So all their content is, has been great for the advisor community. And so the compound and friends and animal spirits and all those. So it's hard to give one single single source. If I said, what am I reading for work? I'm reading some AI books. So actually the current book, let me just get the title right that I've been listening to this morning. Um, I think artificial intelligence is like one of the big major themes. And so Genius Makers is the one I'm listening to right now. I think artificial intelligence is one of the big fights in technology that's happening. And you're going to see it more in our industry. You're seeing more and more artificial intelligence motivated strategies as both the companies who are operating artificial intelligence, but actually artificial intelligence strategies running ETFs. So there'll be news pending on that for us in the future, but on both elements of that curve. And then I'd say on the health side, Hacking Darwin by Jamie Metzl is somebody I'm working very closely with. And if you haven't read Jamie's books, he was one of the earliest in code. Uh, he's got a very interesting background. He worked in the in government in the National Intelligence Agencies, where he first started working on genomics and biology. He's been on 60 Minutes for his work on COVID and calling to get more involved in China's role there. But he has been hacking Darwin is all about the biorevolution and its impact, not across, everybody thinks about healthcare, but it's an impact across agriculture, across energy, across data storage. And it's sort of a bit profound. And so Jamie is another person I suggest looking up is for this uh, biorevolution. Well, that's all good stuff. Well, Jeremy, it's been really great to have you on the show today. It's been a great discussion. How can listeners learn more about you, about Wisdom Tree and what you guys are thinking? Well, we are on Twitter. You follow me, Jeremy D. Schwartz. There's a big team of Wisdom Tree people on Twitter. We have a blog that comes out every day. You could get good notes from there. And behind the markets, as you talked about, Kevin Flanagan hosts a podcast called Basis Points. If you're interested in fixed income commentary, Lee Chen that I mentioned on China, the China of Tomorrow podcast is her podcast. So we're trying to be out there in all mediums is where you're trying to find the Wisdom Tree ideas. This is great, Jeremy. I have one more question for you. And it kind of comes back to holiday books because for many years, a book that I gave out was Stocks for the Long Run. And a new edition is coming out. It's not going to be out for the holidays this year. But when yeah. is it being released? We're trying to turn it in you know, very soon. So hopefully middle next year. Let's see if that happens. A perfect July 4th gift. There you go. All right. Thanks. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this week. Rusty, take us out with the final words. Stay balanced, stay the course, and happy holidays. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Strategist at Orion Advisor Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com.
All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.